Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, Alberta's new rules for transgender kids. These are sensitive conversations involving children, and I hope we can depoliticize these issues as much as possible. Premier Danielle Smith unveils new transgender policies for her province, setting off controversy and strong reaction from Ottawa. Is not becoming of her office and is in fact actually targeting and perhaps even demonizing those children. Coming up, as the provinces engage in so-called parental rights debates, will this be an issue federal parties will have to address as well? Also. The, the question at, at, at issue here is uh, a question of readiness. The Trudeau government pushes back medically-assisted death for the mentally ill, delaying its addition until after the next federal vote. Is Ottawa giving in to prejudice? And... The Biden administration pauses the export of American liquefied natural gas. Should Canada ramp up production of LNG and capitalize on the demand? We'll speak with the Natural Resources Minister. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith spent a good part of this day explaining and defending a set of transgender policies that she's introducing, prohibiting hormonal treatment for children 15 years of age and younger, requiring parental permission for hormone therapy for anyone who is 16 or 17, banning top and bottom surgery for anyone under 17, banning transgendered women from women's sports leagues, and requiring parental permission before any student younger than 15 may use a different name or pronoun from the one they had at birth. Uh, Changing how you dress and the pronouns that you have is just one step. The next step, which is far more serious, is puberty blockers and hormones. The following steps, top and bottom surgery, are, are are even more serious steps. And so we want to make sure that as kids embark upon those life-changing decisions that were very clear about uh, the appropriate level to be able to make those those decisions. There has to be a certain level of maturity, of understanding the consequences, the full consequences of what that transition means. And then at age 18 is when, of course, a, a person becomes fully responsible for all of their decisions. We believe that the child's best interests are served by having a supportive family walking every step of the way with them. We believe that the child's best interest is served by making sure that when they're making decisions that it doesn't have, um, it's, not a, it's not irreversible until they're of an age where they're prepared to live with the consequences of that. So um, I, I think because of, of those aspects, I would, I would hope that, uh, that, this is, that this is supported. I, that's the spirit with which we've gone into it, is to making sure that we're protecting children's rights and children's choices. Now, reaction from both supporters and critics have been swift. And here in Ottawa, take a listen to what we heard from Edmonton Centre MP and Minister of Employment, Randy Boissonneau. You're going to go to a school as a young queer kid or a gender-questioning kid and now have to look over your shoulder to wonder which of your other students are going to out you so that they call your parents. Nobody calls you when you join the chess club. Nobody calls your parents when you join the basketball team. Nobody calls your parents when you join the debate team. But now, if somebody thinks you're questioning or queer, they're going to tell the teacher and the teacher's got to call the parents. 
That is not the Alberta I want or that we want. And so I can say this to all the youth. We're here with you. Uh, we are going to look at every option that we have. Well, joining us now is our political panel. Susan Smith is principal with the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Tim Powers, chair of Suma Strategies, and Anne McGrath, who is now principal secretary to the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Hello to the three of you, and Anne, congratulations. Thank you. So listen, let's begin with uh, Premier Danielle Smith and unveiling these new transgender policies. And really, she follows other jurisdictions. We saw something like this in New Brunswick, something like this in Saskatchewan. Is this going to be a wedge issue in Ottawa now and into the next election? I think so. I think what Premier Smith has brought forward has put ideology before people, politics before people. She's trying to make it a wedge issue in her own province, but I do think it's something that will be a wedge issue uh, in terms of where people land on how you care about transgendered youth, young people and the opportunities uh, they have to not to feel comfortable not be persecuted and got to be ratted out by their teachers forced by legislation uh, so i think the i would look to the opposite or the government the liberals will probably push mr polyev on this i would think the ndp would push mr polyev very hard on this uh, it will be a divisive issue uh, unfortunately, it should be an issue that we're not, children should be left alone as far as that goes in terms of being able to be and say and who they are. Um, but yes, I think it's going to become quite politicized even further. Tim? I, I have to agree with, uh, with Susan and it's so unfortunate. I, I have friends who have children who are en engaged in this discussion now, trying to figure it out. And I don't know what the intent of Premier Smith, Premier Higgs, and others, what is the policy problem they're trying to solve? Uh, I don't think they're doing anything that is constructive here. I don't know how informed it is by uh, mental health and wellness advice, by actual uh, physical and medical advice. And it's just a shame, you know, the federal liberals are giving another side to it. I just think everybody's got to be really careful here because you are talking about people who are going through one of the most difficult things they will go through in their lives and making this political is terrible. Yeah. Well, it, 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 what you're saying reminds me of a lot of the commentary I'm reading, people concerned that kids, teenagers are now going to be used as a political football. Do you see this becoming far more of a wedge issue? Well, I think it is intentional that it's a wedge issue. It, it, I mean, you don't do a video announcement like that. I mean, it was done, it was it was staged, it was practiced. It was this was not like an off the cuff answer to a, you know, a question in a scrum. This was a, an announcement done by the premier intentionally, I think, to be political, to be divisive, to be a wedge um, and, you know, a, and to appeal to uh, a group that has taken pretty well taken control of her party um, and we're, so where she had to do things she has to do things to appease this group take back Alberta and uh, I think that she she meant to do it and she know she knew I believe she knew what the consequence would be she was aware of that and uh, she does it anyway super cowardly too to drop it in a video and not do a news conference right because it stands out there she gets no challenging questions she sees what opponents and proponents are going to say all night she's doing her news conference uh, she's to do her news conference today we haven't i haven't had a chance to see it yet but i think it's a really cowardly approach she gets to prep for all the tough stuff 
and then you know give the pat answers or the textbook answers on that. If you're going to make a ridiculous policy, stand and take the heat for it. Yeah, okay. and, I, and I think t I think Tim's Sorry. point is really important, which is how dangerous it is. Yes. It is it is like, I mean, we all know people who are uh, who are either grappling with this now or are feeling targeted or feeling like who's next. Um, and, and I think it's, uh, it is quite dangerous to do something like this. Look, there's of course there's a role for parents and caregivers in a discussion with a child who is transitioning. But I don't think a legislative remedy from government is the way to go. And I'm, you know, it's conservative premiers who are doing this. I find this really off-putting because if it were a different circumstance where the government was telling you what to do, they would be losing the plot. Uh, I mean, I'm way offside the conservatives on this because I, as I say, I see this on a very personal level and I don't see any of the policies that are being suggested would help the people that are going through this journey right now. Okay. Well, of course, something that we're, we're, we'll keep tracking. But speaking of wedge issues, I, I, I do want to bring in medically assisted death because today we heard from, from Mark Holland. Uh, we knew that the government was going to push the, 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 the deadline in terms of ex uh, extending it to those who suffer from mental illness, but that's now a deadline in 2027 after the next election. Is the government bowing down to, to public pressure who are concerned about this extension rather than uh, meeting the, the civil rights uh, of Canadians who have asked for this to be extended? I think this is an incredibly complicated topic and the government has navigated it incrementally, which is the way you needed to do it. it um, you, you couldn't go so far and try and pull back and have you know, drastic consequences. The, there were seven premiers and territorial leaders who wrote to the health minister and said, we're not ready for this. We need a pause before this goes for, forward. A joint House and Senate committee did a study and the majority concluded that Canada is not ready for this. It is very challenging for the people who've been waiting for it, but it's such a complicated scenario that we need to make sure we get it right. Yeah, actually the approach that's being taken here by the provinces and the federal government is one that should be taking place in the policy we just talked about a moment. Let's have a mature discussion about this and what is the problem we're trying to solve. Ultimately, I think, uh, as somebody who's dealt with mental health and wellness issues, who knows a fair bit about the field and knows people who have taken their lives because of the suffering that they've had, I think the legislation will get to a place when it will recognize that some mental health and wellness conditions are irredeemable. But it's okay to do the work to get there. And the second point I'd make is, and I, again, I think this get, debate gets grossly simplified. You don't simply show up at your GP one day and say, I would like to end my life. Credit to the legislative process that many people were part of. There's a whole series of things that have to happen there. So I, again, it's okay to take the time here. I hope they do get to a place though after the time they recognize that there are people who are dealing with mental health issues that are so significant and so severe, they, they are not irredeemable. And? Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a very complicated and sensitive issue. I think that, the, that, that it was, the, personally, I think it was the right thing to do to, 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 uh, to pause it and to have an extension. My only concern is that uh, I, I would like it so that they don't kind of decide to start dealing with it in uh, the last month of 2027. Yeah. You know, like the work yeah. needs to happen. So exactly. they need to actually not see 2027 as, you know, kind of... Uh, an end point where they can just kind of slam into that they can just slam into they have to start the work now 
and get and get it underway. But I think it's absolutely right. The provinces have a lot of work to do, and they weren't ready. And uh, I think it would have been grossly irresponsible to pursue to 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 kind of just move up against that original deadline and get it done when it, when it, when it wasn't possible to do okay, it right. Can I pose to you, though, the dissenting opinion? And this was the dissenting opinion of the, the, the Special Parliamentary Committee, and it was Senators uh, Pamela Wallen, Stan Kutcher, Marie-Francoise uh, Meji. And they essentially made the argument, you can change the criminal code now, and if a jurisdiction, be it a province or a territory, needs to delay, it doesn't mean to say that they, they have to bring it about right away. They can take the time that they need to bring it about, but you can change the criminal code now. What do you make of that dissenting opinion? I think it's, uh, I haven't looked at what the detail is on that. I think that the majority made a very measured opinion. I think the premier's writing in saying we, our systems aren't ready for this. Uh, I think dissenters obviously have reasons that they believe they could put forward, but if you're the physician that's participating in that, you don't want any kind of gray yeah. zone. You need to be, while there may be criminal code implications, you're within each of your provinces, and it puts an inordinate amount of pressure on the practitioners who have to be engaged in that kind of process as well. Just adding to that, I think adding the dissenting opinion to the conversation right now is an important thing to do to see what's possible but you know we're talking about ending lives regardless of the circumstance we can take a little bit of time to get it right yeah and yeah it's a huge responsibility uh, for 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 doctors for governments uh, and I think that that it is absolutely essential that if you're going to take on that kind of responsibility that you know what you're doing and how you're doing it and and what all the implications are Okay, uh, running out of time, so I'm going to jump to our last topic here, and that has to do with fundraising, because we, this week we saw the Conservative Party announce a record-breaking amount, uh, 30, more than $35 million in 2023, the Liberals raising 15.6, the NDP 6.8. What does that mean in the, in, in the kind of strategies the parties can pursue now and leading up to the next election, given the, the dollar amounts raised? Well, hats off to the Conservatives for their fundraising machine. It works and has always worked very well. Uh, they've done small amounts with big base. Uh, what it's going to mean is they're going to have a lot of money to spend. Get ready, Canada. You're going to be listening to Pierre Poilievre on the radio and he's going to be in your social media feed. Maybe it'll annoy people over time because they're going to hear so much about him. But watch for more attack ads. Watch for more promotion ads. They've got the biggest budget so they can blow what they need in advance. Hopefully the there's liberals? no Super Bowl ad. The Liberals have got money too. I think you're going to see them deploying more of it now that there's a new director of communication and there's a bit new more wind in the sails and they have to respond to where they are in the polls these days. They'll be spending money too. It won't be at the level that the Conservatives are spending it at. Yeah, Just like you thought you saw a lot of gambling ads. Hang on, Canada. <laughs> you're sick of gambling ads. The only thing I would add to the analysis is that what it what kind of an advantage it also creates, and I'm sure Anne has been dealing with this, is the nimbleness that it allows to go after local ridings. All the, every time I'm home in Atlantic Canada, on radio stations and in jurisdictions, I'd never thought I'd hear conservative ads. I do. Why am I hearing them? Because those ridings are being targeted. So it's not just the big national ad buy. It's the ability to pop into seats where they want to flip and get into that local media that's still, as you well know, so valuable and so important. That may be a bigger threat than any new, here's Pierre and his family sort
sort of ad that is out there. Yeah, and, yeah. and a big advantage is is having that kind of money outside of a RIP period, yeah. right? So so they have there are no restrictions on how much money they can spend or what they can do with the money or that kind of thing. So that gives them a very big advantage because they're not having to hold on to that for the RIP period where there are restrictions on how much you can spend and, and, and all of those kinds of things. The other thing I have to say is that having the most money doesn't always mean you win. Okay, uh, but what does it mean for the NDP, though, if they haven't raised as much and we're going to be bombarded with these ads, as, as is the prediction, quite frankly, the promise as well, because we ads heard that during the Conservative National Convention. Ads launching her YouTube channel, and she's going to run all the ads. She's a TikToker. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. Okay, no, I'm going to have to subscribe real quickly on that one. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, what, what it, for us, it, it was, it's the largest, uh, it's the best fundraising, non-election year mm-hmm. fundraising that we've had, so we're quite happy with that. Um, it does mean that uh, we, we will continue to do the work to try and get the message out, but money helps in politics. It absolutely helps. And I think that um, uh, the other thing I will say is that uh, the Conservatives spent a lot of money to make that much money. It, t- it costs money to raise that much money. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say it indicates where, where public opinion is right now? <laughs> is that a softball? Uh, I, mean, yeah, I mean, look, money follows momentum, or momentum and money are, are often combined. Though the history of the Conservative Party, even when they weren't as faring as well in the polls, they have a more in-depth fund, individual fundraising system that has always produced dividends for them. Okay. Well, always good to have the conversation. Glad that we're back after nice the uh, Christmas break. Nice to see all three of you. Susan, Tim, and Anne, thank you. Uh, we'll do it again next week. Excellent. Is there an opportunity to make Canada's liquefied natural gas industry a bigger global player? Well, that is what the CEO of Calgary-based Enbridge suggested earlier this week, reacting to a decision made by the Biden administration last Friday to pause any new LNG export projects in the U.S. while a review is carried out. But is Ottawa willing to ramp up LNG investments more than it already has to fill any potential demand that results from the Biden decision? Well, joining us now is the Minister of Energy and Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson. Minister, thank you for making the time. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, let's talk about LNG here, because with this pause in the United States, many have argued now's the time for Canada to ramp up LNG production for governments like yours to support the industry. Is there an argument from your side to be made uh, about ramping up LNG to, to make up for any shortfall that an American policy will create? Well, I mean, let me say, first of all, uh, we welcome what the Americans have done. They basically said they're going to pause and look at how LNG fits in the context of the work that they are doing on climate. That's something Canada did several years ago, and that's why we have worked very hard to ensure that Canada's LNG is the lowest carbon LNG anywhere in the world. We've put in place methane regulations. We require that uh, the liquefaction is done increasingly with electricity. Um, And so, you know, I do think that in a world that is looking to decarbonize, they are increasingly looking for low carbon sources of natural gas as part of the transition. That certainly positions Canada quite well. Um, I would, though, say that, you know, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that that the International Energy Agency says that, you know, gas use is going to peak, uh, demand is going to peak before the end of the decade. And so countries that actually focus on providing very low carbon intensity natural gas actually can have an advantage in that kind of a market. So an advantage, is that uh, uh, something that Canada can step into readily, though? Well, I mean, Canada's first large-scale LNG facility will be coming on stream quite soon. That's LNG Canada. But there are two others that have been approved. Um, And uh, and I think uh, the wood fiber one is going into... uh, 
essentially construction very soon. Uh, there's another one, Cedar LNG, which is a little bit farther behind. But I do think that there is an opportunity. But, but you know, we also have to be clear that that, that opportunity is not unlimited. Um, it, this is a transition fuel. Um, at the end of the day, if we are going to achieve net zero by 2050, we need to see declining usage of oil, coal, and natural gas. Um, and, and so my argument to the sector is we actually do have an opportunity here if we actually focus on the carbon intensity of the fuel that we're supplying. We can actually help Japan and others to displace heavier hydrocarbons if we tie it to the displacement of heavier hydrocarbons like coal. Um, but we have to be thoughtful about this and that's why I say we welcome what the Americans are doing because you know, they are now following in Canada's footsteps. Okay, following in our footsteps though, but, but what about increasing production? What about increasing government investment in a sector that really wants to take advantage of this right now? Well, certainly companies actually have to assess the business case. They have to assess what the market's going to look like going forward. As I say, they have to assess the competitiveness of, of the Canadian product. And I believe that part of being competitive is the low carbon intensity of it. Um, but the Government of Canada has made a decision that we're not going to subsidize fossil fuel projects going forward. Um, that is through the fossil fuel subsidy that we announced about six months ago. That's aligned with commitments that all of the, the large um, uh, democratic countries have made around the world as part of the fight against climate change. So we certainly are interested in the sector, looking at the carbon intensity and assessing the market and looking to see if there are opportunities for Canada to grow its share of what eventually will be a declining market. But the government of Canada will not be making significant investments in the LNG area. Okay, but you know, I, I want to pick up on a point that you did address vis-a-vis -vis coal, because you know, Canada does contribute, as you know, less than 2% of global emissions. LNG, as you noted, is said to be one way of weaning countries off of coal. When you weigh the options here, the economic benefit for Canada, helping take countries off of a dirty fuel like coal, is there not a net positive to further developing LNG quickly? Well, I, I would probably take issue with a couple of things you said. I mean, this argument that Canada is 2% of global emissions is, in my mind, the refuge of the climate denier. At the end of the day, if countries make that argument, nobody will do anything. Um, Canada needs to participate. We are one of the top 10 emitters in the world, and we are number one or number two on per capita basis. So we all have to contribute to the fight against climate change. But in the context of, of displacement of coal, you actually do have to focus on domestic emissions, which is what the Americans are now going to do for the first time, you know, in terms of methane in the upstream, in terms of how you actually liquefy, because you only actually improve um, overall carbon emissions generally, globally, in terms of displacement of coal, if you're offering a product that is low carbon. Um, at the end of the day, the, the higher the carbon intensity of the fuel that you're sending out uh, as natural gas, the less displacement of uh, GHGs that you get from displacing coal. So there is an argument, but you have to actually focus on ensuring that domestic GHG emissions are low and you actually have to tie it directly to the displacement of coal. It can't be displacing renewables or you're going in the wrong direction. And you also have to recognize that there is a time period here. If people actually are, are believing the net zero by 2050 commitments that most countries have done, eventually we will have to stop combusting natural gas. And so you have to figure out how you're going to be competitive in what will need to be a declining market between 2030 and 2050. Canada has an opportunity and we, uh, we are certainly working with the sector on that, but it starts with minimizing our own carbon emissions. Okay. But are you at all concerned that you may be alienating those in the oil and gas sector, workers who, who rely on it for jobs? Uh, some might even argue further alienating them from your government. 
Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think the, the opportunity for the sector actually lies in, uh, in reducing carbon emissions. That's about enhancing competitiveness. And I would say to you, there is a huge opportunity for Alberta and Saskatchewan um, from natural gas in the production of ultra-low carbon hydrogen, which would be a fuel that can be used in a net zero universe. So, you know, there is an enormous amount of potential in the sector and we need to be working together as we are to ensure that we are seizing the short-term transitional opportunity and the long-term energy opportunity. Minister Wilkinson, really appreciate the time. Thank you for the discussion. All right, thank you very much. Time now for a look at what happened in politics today. The Alberta government has unveiled sweeping new rules for transgender youth in the province. Danielle Smith making the announcement last night on social media. Making permanent and irreversible decisions regarding one's biological sex while still a youth can severely limit that child's choices in the future. Prematurely encouraging or enabling children to alter their very biology or natural growth, no matter how well-intentioned and sincere, poses a risk to that child's future that I, as Premier, am not comfortable with permitting in our province. Under the proposed measures, puberty blockers and gender-affirming surgery will be prohibited for children 15 years of age and younger. The province will also ban children under 17 from having top and bottom surgery, and students aged 15 years and younger will require parental permission before they can use their preferred names or pronouns at school. The policy also will not allow transgender women to compete in women's only sports leagues. The move is already drawing criticism from politicians in Ottawa. I'm deeply disturbed. Um, the decision that was made by Alberta places kids at risk. Uh, we know that uh, one, of the, one of the number one reasons why kids take their life uh, is, uh, is problems around sexual identity. Uh, and uh, that the ability to be who you are, you know, uh, is so vitally important. Staying in Ottawa, legislation was introduced today to delay expanding assistance in dying to people with mental illness until March of 2027. The Liberal government says it faced pressure from provincial and territorial health ministers to pause the changes until the healthcare system is ready to implement them. What we are saying to Canadians is that because of the significance of the decision, because of the, uh, the nature of the consequences of this kind of policy, we have to ensure that we get it right and we are determined to do just that and putting a pause on it for the next three years will ensure the system readiness, which is what uh, the healthcare system has indicated is required and what Canadians are asking. Under the proposed legislation, another parliamentary review in two years' time will reassess the healthcare system's readiness. And finally, the inquiry examining alleged foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections heard from Canada's top spy today. CSIS Director David Vigneault telling the Hogue Commission that while Canada's intelligence agencies intend to be as open as possible, there are limits to what can be shared. So the Parliament of Canada has created CSIS to be able to collect information, produce intelligence. So the purpose of CSIS is to have secrets, which is different than transparency. The inquiry is studying foreign interference in Canada's democratic process and how the government can best detect, deter and counter it. 
And that is our program for this Thursday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Primetime Politics is back tomorrow, but up next, Estée Bejean avec l'Essentiel.